Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, Indigenous Simplicity and Sustaining Human Life on Earth. Poisonous rivers, raised carbon footprint, corrosive authority. It makes you think, we really need to look after our planet. Can you imagine having your home destroyed? Can you imagine a life full of ruin? Well, for Indigenous communities, this is their reality. Sir Tim Smith intends to flip Western control over these areas on its head in his role as co-founder of the Eden Project, and now through its next phase of international expansion across all continents. To make a change, you must take a stand. As climate grows warmer, Tim highlights that the debate shouldn't be about carbon, but about keeping our planet cool. With opposed views on this establishment, Tim outlines the importance of collective moral compass. In other words, big businesses wake up. Our world is fragile. It needs to be protected, not thrown to the wayside. While there's work to be done, it's time to dig deep and save the earth. Hello, everybody. Before I begin talking, I'd just like to point out one thing that some of the people in the audience might not know, which is that when people talk about your carbon footprint, be aware that your carbon footprint, the phrase your carbon footprint, was invested in by British Petroleum through BMP in order to make all the rest of us feel that we were responsible. I just want you to know that because it's really interesting how we've absorbed that phrase. I'm going to be talking about indigenous stuff because Eden is working in indigenous projects all over the world and I wanted to see whether there were any intrinsic truths about the way that we in the West tend to look at indigenous cultures as if they were simple because of course they're not. The only really simple thing about indigenous cultures is that uniquely they are egalitarian and because of the way they look at resources, they see resources as to be shared. And where that has a, an impact on where we're all going with COP uh, is that it is interesting how an organization dominated predominantly by middle-aged men who work an awful lot to make things seem fair when they're not we need to realize that young people, the young COP that met last year, interestingly did something so sensible that old COP couldn't actually find it acceptable at all, which was that young COP felt that the fair way of dealing with the world's resources was to ask those that were in greatest threat of losing their resources soonest to have the biggest say when it came to voting for what actions should happen. Now, to all of us in the audience, that might seem like an incredibly sensible thing to do uh, on the grounds that it is fair, and we ought to examine why this is not happening. But I'm going to begin in terms of talking about indigenous cultures uh, by saying that any of you who've ever read the Bible, I do not personally have any religious comfort, but if you choose to read the Bible, one of the really interesting things about the Bible is that all the, books, all the books of the Bible were written, except one, by farmers. It is an agrarian manifesto for life. It is basically a set of rules about how agrarian cultures uh, should behave in one form or another, what will happen to them if they do not. And primarily, uh, those books are about the primacy of property uh, and all things are regarded as property, from women down to grain. Interestingly, though, there's one book 
just one that was written by hunter-gatherers. And that book is the book of Genesis. And one of the really interesting things about that is that the ultimate sin of eating fruit from the tree of knowledge led to the ultimate banishment from paradise to have to go and till the earth. It's quite obvious when you read Genesis what an appalling punishment that was seen to be to have to till the earth. Five years ago, the Eden Project went to a place called Squamish, which some of you may know. It is between, um, British, uh, between Vancouver and uh, Whistler Mountain. Uh, and Squamish is the home, the central home of uh, the native peoples called the Squamish. And we went, they, are, they had asked us whether Eden would design something uh, that would capture the spirit of the Squamish that they could own in the eponymous place, Squamish. And we turned up in a room about half the size of this, filled with Squamish peoples, and the elders were all around the front. And we revealed what to us we called the subliminal squid. That was our design for a creature, a tiktalic coming out of the ocean onto the land. They got up as a man and woman and roared their approval. We basked in this, but we thought we'd really made it until the eldest of the elders informed us they thought that we were geniuses for having spotted that the, the most important symbol of the Squamish was the sacred ore and that they thought what we had got on, on our picture was this sacred ore. So we then had to quickly redefine what it was that we'd drawn on the screen, and we got to talking with them. And what was very interesting to me was they were, A, disinterested in money. They are the richest native peoples in the world. And within two years, they're going to own half of Vancouver and all of Whistler Mountain, and they don't care less. They turned down an offer uh, from various oil companies for $1.8 billion in order to drive a pipeline through their land. The thing that worried them the most was the loss of their sacred plants. And the interesting thing was they only had four. They, they could only find four of them in the nearby area. And um, the ladies, they were all ladies who were shamans, felt that their power and hence the, the, the sense of belonging of their people would go if they could not uh, maintain these plants. And it was really weird that having talked about a hundred million pound project to build something for them in Squamish, the project ended up being a few thousand quid propagating rare plants in order to take them back and to be able to be sown all over the mountains there. And that was very humbling, very humbling to us in, in terms of uh, what, what really is important. We then had a project, we still have a project in New Zealand in the bend of the Ave River Avon where you have the, uh, the earthquake took place, where we're working with the uh, Maori iwi people uh, building uh, what to them, they call it a mahengakai, that whole area of uh, a Christchurch where the River Avon comes through used to be a breadbasket, which is the, the spiritual word for which is a mahangakai, where the, the holy totems of the Maori people, white bait and eels, um, uh, uh, came together in huge, in huge numbers. And we're building a project there with, with them, directed by them, to try and restore the land. 
And I cannot tell you how depressing it is to be working in a country of people that speak your language, that have a brand called Pure. If you're going to go to New Zealand, it's always Pure New Zealand. The River Avon in Christchurch, along with half of the other rivers of New Zealand, is so poisonous that people don't swim in it. There's hardly any life at all. It comes mainly from the nitrates that are washed into the river. Um, and it's really interesting because the New a lot of New Zealanders do not believe there is climate change. And, when you, and, and one of the reasons they believe there isn't is because the amount of rain is the same as they had before. But the trouble is it's falling. It's the same amount, but it's falling in much greater quantities at different times when the earth is baked and therefore it's washing all the nitrates into the river. So we're trying to create a, a, a project there with the Maori to measure every mile of the River Avon. It was very inspiring. I, I, I was in a project in Dubai last week. We, Eden Project has built the centerpiece, Terra, the sustainability pavilion. And to celebrate its opening, we had this guy, Gerard, Gerard Mayui, who, who is the guy who got into international law in New Zealand law, that the, the major river that where his people were became a recognized person and therefore had human rights. And it was really moving hearing him talk about the human, the human rights or the person rights uh, of the river. And we'll come on to that again in a minute because for us with, with dealing with indigenous rights, the, the biggest thing that, that hit Eden was when we went to Australia to be asked to build a project uh, in a huge mine at a place called Anglesey on the Great West Road. Um, uh, which is, the mine has been restored, but it is the place of the Wadawurrung people. And while we were there, we met a guy. If you have never heard of Bruce Pascoe, make it the one thing you remember of my speech, a guy called Bruce Pascoe and a book called Dark Emu, where Bruce has spent 20 years researching the early explorers to Australia before the English colonial office ordered the rewriting of the history of uh, what was found. And it, it's very clear in the colonial office why the history of Australia was rewritten. And it was rewritten because what the early explorers found in Australia, the very first ones, was not a bunch of hunter-gatherer originals who, aboriginals who, uh, uh, who worked in Dreamtime and everything. There were villages of 7,000 people. There were grain houses. Van Diemen's Land was an enormous grain, uh, grain store, huge, because the, the people had discovered how to create plates of clay which they put under the desert. So when the dew formed in the evening and the dew fell through uh, the grains of sand, it was collected in the plates of clay. So you're talking about villages of 7,000 plus. You're talking about river traps of such sophistication that no family could catch more than they could eat. But people were catching fish up to 30, 40 miles up the River Darling, up the River Murray. And that's an amazing thought, that we managed to rewrite all of that history for very sophisticated people. Um, and we rewrote the history because the British couldn't bear that anybody could have a say on the land and that they were permanent there. And when you look at the archaeology now of Australia, you see all the villages that were knocked down, just completely knocked down so that this history, the past, could be denied. Interestingly, also, I don't know if you know this, but uh, there's been some excavations which completed last October in the Northern Territories in which they've discovered that Aboriginal peoples were in Australia an incredible length of time before we, pre before we thought. Up to 100,000 years ago, they were there. And in all that time, there is no sign of any warfare between Aboriginal peoples, you know, uh, the, the, the traditional owners, as they're now called, 
It's awful. Any of you who've ever worked in Australia, it is excruciating where every social event is presaged by some guy getting up on stage or a woman getting up on stage and saying, I'd like to pay tribute to our traditional owners as if that's going to get you off a bit like we've done our disability workshop test. And it's really a very strange thing dealing with Australians about uh, the, the truth of their past. So what does that teach us? I actually really wanted to launch into a rant. I noticed that I was supposed to talk about indigenous simplicity before I had my, my leash slipped. At the Eden Project, right now, 4,350 meters below the ground, our drill has hit heat of 157 degrees centigrade. The Eden Project, within 12 months of today, is going to be completely energy independent. We're going to have solar over all our car parks. And what does that mean? We are going to be so carbon positive, so carbon positive, we're going to restrict entry to the Eden Project to people who've come from Venus only. This is actually what we want to do. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because when you meet politicians, they set their targets for what is possible so fucking low. If you read the IPCC report, which woe betide you if you have, it is monumentally dull. The really good bit is it's a red alert, and then after that it falls away from interest. Okay? These people actually still say... It is only realistic by the year 2100 that the world will be able to be self-sufficient on renewables. Right? That's what they're saying. What are they talking about? We have the technology now. We can be in every part. Let's take Britain, because our heads can get round Britain. In Britain, the fossil fuel companies will tell you that you cannot be completely renewable unless you include nuclear as a word, renewable, um, because it's too expensive to do geothermal. They would say that, wouldn't they? And you know why they'd say that? Because the ability to hire drilling equipment, the difficulty we had hiring drilling equipment because fossil fuel people didn't want Eden to hire drilling equipment, because once we had drilling equipment and showed that it could work, and then the demand for fuel drops off, for fossil fuels drops off, it suddenly dawns on everybody, the cost of hiring drills is going to go down, isn't it? And when it goes down and you suddenly realize that you can reach the heat of 150 degrees at about 6.8 kilometers below London, probably a bit less here in Bristol, you suddenly go, wow, if the cost of drilling goes down to half or a third of what it is today, we could make every community in Britain completely independent. And if you do that, and you then start to look at Britain in a completely different way, a bit like indigenous people might see it. You see where I'm bringing indigenous in? That was a clever segue, wasn't it? Now, what you could do is when you look at how things are done in certain communities, especially in the Basque country, where you can create super dot, dot, dot markets by agricultural cooperatives around places, which if you've got hot water coming out of geothermal, it means that almost every plant known to humankind can be grown within about 20 miles of where you live. Just think about that. And this is supposed to be a fantastical vision. It's not. We can get started on that now. It's a question of will. It is pure will. It's the same when people add up all the maths of how much energy you'll save by having electric cars. People never add up the amount of container ships that will not be needed if you've got renewable energy and electric cars. 40%, 40% of all the container ships on the ocean contain hydrocarbons. 
moving fuel around the world. The great, best statistic, but if you want to know where I get the statistic from, it's from Rethink X, their report on the future of energy, that 23%, 23% of every lorry load in America is coal. Just think of that. So if the coal disappears, if the hydrocarbons disappear, you've got so much steel you can recycle that a lot of the carbon analysis on what you're going to be having to do in order to, uh, to get ourselves down to equilibrium is just rubbish. It's just utter, utter rubbish. We can do this thing if we stop people being really negative about the possibility of humans doing things at a speed with, if you like, harnessing the rigor of war to a time of peace. That's what we've got to do. That's really what we've got to do. But it's pretty simple stuff. And the other thing I just wanted to say about all this is when you get people talking about carbon, and carbon be, be aware, the problem is not carbon. We are carbon. We're dealing with fugitive carbon. Accountants love carbon because you can add it up. And my particular love in life is trees, and everybody tells you how much, much carbon trees will absorb. The more ignorant the person, the more certain they are of the amount of carbon the tree will absorb. It's absolutely astonishing. We'll plant trees, that's what we'll do. As if everywhere where there wasn't a tree wasn't absorbing carbon, therefore it's a new insight. We'll put trees there. Well, what trees? Oh, any old tree will do. There are trees all over the world. Many of, them, many of you in the audience will be working with some of the great charities planting trees. I don't know whether many of you have ever visited the trees after they were planted. I won't mention any names, but one of the world's most famous tree planting schemes is notorious on the fact that it does indeed plant trees. It knows bugger all about maintaining them from one season through to the next. The issue about trees isn't the sodding carbon. The issue about trees is that they are magnificent things and they sweat. If you're being posh, it's called transpiration. And when they sweat, they take the heat from the earth to turn them into mist. So they go up into the sky and they become clouds. And when they become clouds and bigger clouds, they start to go white, don't they? And they reflect sunlight back into space. The debate isn't about carbon. The debate is about keeping our world cool. So, as we stand on the verge of going to COP, I would say to all of you in the audience who are going to COP, we're going too with little expectation of excitement, save meeting marvelous people, and a great deal of hope that the world might come to its senses. But the really important thing, the most important thing, without joking, going back to indigenous values, is that people remember that you get sucked into being a member of the establishment. The establishment is a corrosive cancer, especially for men. Once you get accepted into it, you find all sorts of ways of not mentioning the appalling things the person opposite you is doing and finding reasons like, well, you have to work with people to change them as opposed to banging them on the nose. Do you know what I mean? Most of people like me benefit from other people banging other people on the nose. It's really bad if I bang someone on the nose, but I'd love to take credit for it when someone else does it, you know what I mean? It's like when some guy throws a brick through McDonald's in Gothenburg. I wouldn't do it. I think the guy that did it was an idiot. But my God, am I grateful that he or she did it because it means someone's interested in hearing my view about why they might have done it. Are you with me? No one wants to hear what we've got to say unless someone does something, you know, nuts. Because why? because we're boring. 
We are so sodding boring in the environment movement, talking about percentage points and everything. We should be talking about a moral compass. It's very simple. And the fracture of intimacy we have to achieve is to split off big business that is ethical from big business that isn't ethical and give big business that is ethical the courage to throw out of that party those people who are behaving badly. Let us be honest, I've got my friend in the front row who's done an enormous amount for water from Service Against Sewage. Why is it that we do not treat people who poison the birthright of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren in rivers? Why do we not call that treason? Do you know that it's more likely if you jump into the river wharf, you're going to have two sanitary towels around your ears rather than seeing a trout? This is scandalous. And we're just not angry enough. I could go on with a rant about what's wrong, but it doesn't really matter. The issue is we can put it right pretty, right pretty quickly if we believe in a moral compass, demand it, speak truth to power, and tell people who think that they're capitalists, remember Isambard Kingdom Brunel. He thought anything was possible. And what we're suggesting is trivial compared to building the canal network and the rail network and all the rest of it. We could get all of this done by 2030. And I shall end with that optimistic, uplifting sentiment to say we all need to remember to be angry in a targeted way with a moral sense of duty to future generations. So I shall now bugger off the stage I'm really sorry that was a bit of a funny speech, going the weirdest way around to deal about indigenous people. For those of you who came wanting to know about indigenous tribes around the world, I offer my condolences. Um, but um, um, anyway, see you all soon. We hope you enjoyed that inspiring talk and gained some proper actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.